Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Before I introduce today's guest, the usual reminder to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel for those of you who follow the podcast on YouTube. And for the avid podcast listeners, just search the Blood Brothers podcast on all major audio platforms. I am very excited about today's guest. Uh, his appearance has been long overdue. Uh, we've got lots of high profile cases to go through. He is a lawyer who specializes in terrorism and counter security and crime and defamation and data law. He, You will very likely would have seen him in the many media interviews that he's been doing at least in the past two, three years with very high profile Muslim related cases. And that's none other than our brother Tasnim Akanji. Asalaamu Alaikum. Tasnim, how are you? Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. You know, I had, um, I was thinking to myself when, I, when, you were gonna, when you were coming, I'm thinking, what is he going to wear? Okay. Tasnim is going to outdress me. And the best I could do was a Stone Island jumper. Well, we're quite close to Luton. Yeah. Stone Island has an association <laughs> with that. So. So I appreciate that. I thought, I thought you were going to boss me out with a three-piece tweed, which, by the way, you boss it very well, mashallah. That's very kind, but yeah. I thought comfort over... That's good, day. that's good. Uh, Tasima, we've got lots to go through today. Um, and I want to guess I want to kick off today's podcast with what I think, at least, is perhaps one of your most recent high-profile cases, mm-hmm. and that's uh, the Shamima Begum case. Sure. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Now, for our listeners and viewers, especially those outside of the UK... Uh, who are unaware of the Shamima Begum case Please Tassim Bhai, please interject if I get any facts wrong mm-hmm. A 15 year old British Bangladeshi Muslim girl from Bethnal Green uh, Left for Raqqa from Bethnal Green when she was 15 in 2015 with two other girls, yes? Uh, yes, that's correct um, Went there, ended up marrying someone who was an ISIS fighter um, When you say they, I mean they may married different people May have married different people but, but, but that was the narrative that was presented She was an ISIS bride That what was, was fed to the masses uh, by the media and its politicians. Now, this case really, really is, it, it, it takes me back because that initial war in Syria, there was lots of laws during that 2014, 15, 16 time. We had the Counter-Tourism Security Bill, mm-hmm. the CTS Act. We had all kinds of legislation happening linked to Syria. How did the Shamima Begum case land on your lap? Well, I was in Finland at the time. Um, and this is sort of February 2015. Um, I was out there working on a different sort of terrorism case to do with, with, with the Finnish sort of judicial system. And I got a phone call from, um, from a guy called Salman Farsi. He was the comms officer at the time for Istana Mosque. I do recall him, yes. He's a, he's a very good man. And um, he has, to my knowledge, over the years, I've known him a long time, gone out of his way to help the Muslim community uh, and been involved in very difficult situations himself, always put himself out. Mm. And he called me, he was very upset. I asked him what was happening, and before he would say anything, he, he, he trapped me, basically. So he said, uh, he said, before I ask you something, you have to say yes. <laughs> now, now, you know, I'm not normally that foolish, um, <laughs> but, but he is somebody who I have a lot of time for, and he's never asked me for anything, and to my knowledge, he's never asked anyone of anything. So he said yes before the, hearing the proposition? Yeah, so that's a lesson to everybody. Okay. Always listen to the question first before <laughs> answering. But, but, but he, as I say, he was upset, he, he was at the edge of tears, and then he explained that there's three families that come to the mosque, 
Um, Local uh, East London Bengali families, yeah? Absolutely. Well, uh, no, the two of them were Bengali and one was an Eritrean family. Okay. Um, but they were all, you know, uh, communally known to the mosque their families had come. It's, it's local to them. And um, these three girls uh, of these families had, uh, to their understanding, had gone over to Syria or were on their way to Syria and certainly had gone missing. And they were very upset about how the counterterrorism police were, were sort of treating them. They were keeping them out of the loop and whether I could do anything. Um, so I, I was sort of scratching my head a little bit because there are some things that come to mind immediately when children have gone over to, to a, a war zone. Mm. Um, but the real, the real issue there is, well, as a sort of lawyer, you want to advise the families to make sure they don't fall into any traps. And one of those traps at that time, the legislation at the time, uh, and, and that subsists now, is that if you send money to your children even, in order, with your full intention of them coming back or getting out of the situation they're in, it could still be treated as, um, as terrorist financing. And so, well, you like financial material support to a prescribed organization, se- exactly. Section 15 of the Terrorism Act 2000, and it's counterintuitive because you would think that okay, some kids have made a terrible mistake, you want to resource them to get away and you know yes. turn around 180 degrees and come away from that, but still, there are many cases where parents who have done that, quite famously, Jack Letts, as parents as well, um, well, they themselves have been arrested under that provision and, and convicted. So there are elements within that where, you, where families need a lot of advice because it's not always common sense. And so I agreed to, to help the family. So what was it that was worrying Salman so much? Uh, Salman is a brother who I know of, and I've only known great things about the brother, mm-hmm. especially as his tenure as the, I think he was the media guy at ELM, wasn't he? He was. Uh, genuine brother. Um, what was it that was concerning him so much? What was the case? So um, it was, at, at that point in time, it was three girls from the same school who have managed to somehow go over to Syria. But the case was a lot larger than that. There was actually four girls, uh, one who'd left in December 2014, and there were also a further five who were also influenced by this, and one of which, for our, to our knowledge, was going to go, and the other four were subsequently made wards of court. So we're talking about nine girls, really, in total, that this was a real concern over, half of which actually did go. Okay. Um, so he, the reason... I mean, he was upset because children of the community were now lost to ISIS and or potentially lost to ISIS and this was the worst case of radicalization in the western hemisphere and it was all coming out one school so it was highly concentrated highly localized and you couldn't believe that um this level of radicalization and effect as, as in children going uh, hadn't been detected and and wasn't you know being wasn't being uh, mitigated with um, you know child safeguarding, so the police also ha- the way they were treating the family, they'd actually made well a number of mistakes, which are highlighted later. But most importantly, they simply did not inform the families about the risks around their children. So, from you were fiddling at the time, you came back. So, mine made the proposition, or at least it told you that look, this is a situation. Mm. So, where did the actual instruction come from? As a solicitor, who instructed you? So the families eventually, uh, we, well, we met them very quickly. Mm. Uh, they outlined the situation uh, and then they instructed us to advise them and assist. Okay. And, th- and that's where the real sort of, cav- <laughs> sort of journey begins with the assist phrase of things. And really when you see um, families who are completely crushed, completely crushed, they've lost minors, then you can't do, you c- as a human being, you can't do anything but 
agree to help someone. Of course. Um, and we thought we'd, we'd have a certain amount of penetration into Turkey, a certain amount of penetration to Syria itself with certain groups that maybe we could activate um, people who have information will know about these things and maybe at least build a picture around where there might be good good routes where we could interject or get a message out. Um, and so we started working on that really fairly quickly. Did you have concerns back in 2015, the possibilities of the revocation of her citizenship? No, later? that wasn't an issue. That, that wasn't something that you were concerned about it, then? It, no, up until that point, the, I mean, we were aware of revocation of citizenship issues. They'd been reserved to very, very specific cases. I think between 1971 and all the way up until... Uh, 7 7 2005 2006 yeah. um, that type of legislation was very difficult for governments to use because the definition of of somebody somebody's actions would have to be that they were engaged in activity that was against the fundamental interests of the british state mm. now we're talking about guy fawkes level stuff you know of course. um after that Tony Blair changed the law as a Labour Party problem. They they watered it down massively, so that it now became somebody who was, you know, engaged in behaviour not conducive to the public good. But even then, that was a change in law. But the policy wasn't rolled out mm. as a mass sort of tool. Um, and really, if you look at the cases, it was extremely uh, focused upon sort of leadership material type people. They tried mm. to deploy it against Abu Hamza and actually failed. Yeah. Um, and beyond that, they you know they targeted certain individuals who were seen in the security services as fairly high-ranking or at least of such concern that 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 it warranted that type of attention. So, in 2015, understandably, that was not something that you were concerned about. Just wasn't on the radar, and it wasn't <coughs> actually the the case. The police were actively trying to get these girls back. Okay. So they they had advised the families to go on t- the BBC and make a an appeal yeah. uh, in their names and. To, for us, anyone who's been involved in this sort of like sphere, that's that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Um, you know, the, the issue is is that once the media get involved in these things, then all government and sub-government sort of structures, they are very, very cautious about how they interpret their own laws. Absolutely. Um, and the security services, where they may have been helpful before well they they don't like the limelight they're gone so let's let's so, so, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned security services i saw a recent interview you did um on gbtv mm-hmm. and uh, you you basically said quite clearly not on certain terms that the security services knew knew a lot more than they let off uh in the sense that they were aware of certain levels of communication there was surveillance that was happening on some or most of the girls um can you elaborate on some of this stuff? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we go back to the original girl. Her name is Shamina Begum, not Shamima Begum. And they're not related. But they were in the same class and they were friends. So she leaves the UK in December 2014. So she's the first to leave? First to leave. Yeah. Okay. Um, and her father, Mr. Udin, he tells the school and the uh, police that he's aware that his daughter's left. There was bereavement in the family. His wife had died from cancer. You know, his daughter didn't feel maybe that she was so accommodated in his new marriage, and she she just basically disappeared. It wasn't entirely surprising yeah. as a reaction, but uh, <coughs> she called her father two weeks after and said, "Look, I'm in Syria. Don't bother coming after me, uh, and I'm never coming back." But quite clearly, he communicated that to the school and to the police, and so the you know this missing persons case of his daughter was then converted into a counterterrorism case. Um, 
and because it goes across borders, she's in Syria, yeah. um, then it would have activated the interests of MI5 and MI6, of GCHQ. <coughs> so the police then, or counterterrorism police then, descended on the school. Um, Shamimullah have not left yet. No, no, no. This is December 2014. Shamima leaves... February. February, yeah, yes. So mid-February yep. 20, 20, 2015. Yeah. And so the police then engage with the school... And they identify the umbra and the penumbra of her, her sort of friendship circle, the close friends yeah. and, the, and the wider circle of friends. And they get nine girls together and they start questioning them, but they don't tell their parents. Yeah. Is that, was that legal at the time? Actually, no. was it not under the CTS Act? No, well, you, you can't question minors without, without permission of their respective guardians. Now, what it appears is that the school had stepped in technically as the guardian in that role. You know, they, they, that's a question mark as to whether they can actually do that. I'm so sorry to pick your brains out. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think that, remember when the whole CTS bill was happening yeah, and, sure. and there was all these instances of children being questioned either by police and or specially safeguarding teachers without yeah. the, the, the parents' uh, consent yeah. or knowledge. So legally, were they allowed to do this? So there's an argument over this because technically the issue is is if a parent themselves, and it's not necessarily about counterterrorism, but if a parent themselves, let's say, abusing their children, or there's abuse happening and the parents are knowledgeable about this and are turning a blind eye, then you wouldn't get the consent from the parents, of course, because they would potentially be the actual perpetrators. Ah, so you're basically saying in those situations, because they don't know about, or they will at least present, we don't know the involvement of the families, yeah. they will not be wise to have them as guardians of consent. Absolutely, because you. you're tipping okay. them off. Yeah. Got you, cool. Um, however, the question <coughs> here becomes, well... You're fully aware, or the counterterrorism is fully aware, that the first girl who leaves, her parents or father certainly isn't involved in this. He's the one reporting to the police. The, the girls who then subsequently, the three girls in February, well, their parents are the ones that are actually reporting them missing. So the idea that the parents are involved in this is negated by the very fact that the parents are the ones tipping off the police to the missing nature of their children. So that really doesn't apply there. Um, and the, and the school's sort of position uh, on it is extremely dubious. And the reason being is that these girls were being questioned together, all nine of them sitting around in a room with a police officer questioning them. Now, that that's just bre breaches any idea of sort of scientific approach to policing. There's cross-pollination uh, cross of evidence going on there. Yeah. Uh, you've completely, you know, basically buggered the, uh, the, the, the purity of the evidence, really, at that point. Okay. Uh, so it's all wrong. And the, and the police knew it was wrong. Could they, not argue, could they not argue that the reason it was done in that way, but they, instead of having one-to-one -one interviews, which would, which, would safe, which would protect all those things that you mentioned, the cross-pollination, the contamination of evidence, and all the, 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 the miswiring and cross-wiring, could they not argue that, look, that perhaps shows our sincerity and innocence to actually question all nine of them together at once and they weren't treated as targets one by one. Well, if that were the case, then they wouldn't have then subsequently produced letters requesting permission from their parents. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so that's what happened next, really. Um, they sort of realised that they'd you know, breached every possible <coughs> rule and then they, uh, they produced a bunch of letters. And bizarrely, they just didn't send the letters to their parents uh, they didn't email them. They didn't give it to the school to pass on to them. They gave it to the girls themselves, and none of those letters made it to the parents. And what's even more criminal about the police behaviour in this is if you know you need permission from a parent and you've gone to the trouble of writing a letter saying, get in contact with us, we've yeah. got something very important to talk about. A girl's gone missing, yeah, for yeah. goodness sake. Maybe gone to Syria. These, none of these parents ever contacted the police. And the police never thought, we sent all these letters out, no one's contacted us. Let's follow up on that. Didn't happen. Why didn't they contact the police? 
Because they Because they never got the letter. So never, all the girls basically hid them or threw them away. They never gave the letters. Oh to their my parents. days! So you're telling me the letters weren't posted out. They, were, they, posted. they were given to the girls to go give to their parents. Exactly. Yeah. Now we all know what we do with detention and bad report letters. So you well, can that, imagine a letter from the police. You would have thought that the school might have advised the police that this, if the if that's any like one on one stuff. Well, if, if that's the point, is that if if ever a, a student is in trouble. The school does not give the letter to the student to give to the parents. Dad, they, you're probably going to be watching this, right? There's been a few times where I've not given you letters and stuff I've got from school. And that was that was much less than that. So if I was petrified over something like a detention or, or, or continuous misbehaving in certain classes, and I never should tell my dad, can you imagine a letter from a police officer? Of course they're not going to give it to their parents. So on working theory was that by them getting the letters, that may have stepped up their, the, the three girls who left their... Motivation to get out of the country more quickly, so it may have it may have actually perpetrated this. So, how out of the four girls, Sharmina Begum, the first one to go, who's uh, unrelated to Shamima, mm-hmm. and the other Bengali uh, sister and the Eritrean sister, out of them four, Bar Shamima, are the other three alive? So, uh, the answer is probably not. In terms of Amira Abbas and Khadija Sultana, we've got quite a lot of information that says that they they died and when they died uh shamina begum the first girl who mm. went we have an indication that she may have been killed but that hasn't been it's not in the mutawatir sense basically so we haven't managed to get may allah forgive them shortcomings and uh, grant them jannah i mean man it's really sad to hear this and it's it's, it's quite interesting because you said minors right and you think to yourself tasneem when it comes to sexual grooming right we accept the argument of grooming because it is true, right? Young girls are sexually groomed uh, by sexual predators in a very systematic way. We accept that. We accept that when it comes to gangs and country lines. Why was why didn't the grooming argument take root? Why wasn't the, <clears throat> the, the sympathy that it required? Why wasn't there consistency with this? Because mm. I didn't see it. Because because the way no, no to be fair, it did initially. In 2015, um, the the narrative there, and the police as well, uh, they eventually accepted that um, if these girls were to come back, they would not be treated as anything other than victims. So they, and they put that in writing to us. We, we, we... When, when, what year was that? 2015. 2015. February, March, roughly. Okay. Uh, so we... we well, things have changed since then, Tasneem. This whole talks about... I mean, I mean, I mean, even though when Shamima first gave her interview to the Times, right, uh, we're talking about, you know, when this case... When, when was her when was her citizenship revoked? 2019? 2019, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I remember that. I, yes, there was a sentiment. Yes, there was a sentiment saying... There was a spectrum. There was those who were quite sympathetic, saying that look, this was a young girl, fifteen years old. We'd accept that they were being groomed for if they were if they were drug dealers or part of a or, or part of a sexual grooming case or country lines. We should accept it. Then there was another one saying, let them come back and be trialed here. And then there was just, and this was quite strong. Let her be out there. Let her die out there. This was a decision that we, and we even had that from certain segments of the Muslim community. That's true, but that that's twenty nineteen. There's a, there's a. There's a shift in the public sort of perception of these things from 2015 to 19. She's and a woman, but well, to a certain degree, she's no longer 15 in 2019. It's true. Do you think that would have affected the way people would have seen the case? I don't. I don't think so. No, I don't. I think there's a, a great deal of misogynism in this country. Um, you will see that that misogynism is is actually worse than racism, and it's it's a double compound on anyone who's being and female. 
So you'll notice that the people who get the most grief online on Twitter are people like Diane Abbott, basically, rather than somebody else like uh, David Lammy. Yeah. So, so of course. So they're both black, but the woman gets a lot more grief, really. And so it's, it's another addition. It of, is, yeah. yeah okay. it's, it's it's compounded. Okay. So we have like four hundred people um, who, by the time Shamim Begum was stripped of his citizenship, four hundred people have gone over to Syria and returned. Some of them um, were fighters. Right. Some of them, Sajid Javad himself said, they were not the lowest category of, of concern, which means they're of some concern. Yeah. They they weren't stripped of citizenship. And even Jack Letts, at the same time, you know, he's in a he's in custody in a, in in an actual sort of jailed term conditions in Syria. Um and he had not been stripped of citizenship, but I mean he's a white male. Of course. And um and even at the same time that Shamim... And a Canadian jewel? He's a dual national. He's Canadian as well. Yeah. Well, Shamim was not actually a jewel. No, she isn't, no. Uh, she was only ever born and brought up in the UK. She'd never been to Bangladesh. And her parents had never applied for any sort of status for her in Bangladesh. Didn't even have a, you know, identity card or anything. So it's literally, why I appeared at the time in the story, but they were literally palming her off to Bangladesh. No, the t- Where the if the Hasina regime got hold of her, probably would have killed her anyway. Well, that's what they said that they would do. Literally, uh, that's what they would they would kill her. Well, no, they they officially said that if she appears in Bangladesh, the very next day, the day after she'd been stripped, uh, the foreign minister said if she does come in, she's never she, he didn't accept that she's a citizen, but if she somehow managed to appear in the country, that she would likely be executed. Exactly. He said that he said that in publicly on television. So you know, let's let's focus on this whole the argument of the grooming argument, right? Because there is still a lot of resistance, public opinion against the argument, simply by the virtue of the fact that ISIS bride, Muslim, South Asian, brown, went there with a the bodka. For some reason, she doesn't deserve the sympathy and the empathy that other categories of white young girls who are unjustly and oppressively groomed. Why hasn't Shamima received that level of? See, the thing is about sympathy. I don't. I don't really understand it myself. Um, there are ranges of different people. Some people are monsters and some people are, are, are saints, really. And I think that this country's got quite a lot of monsters in it. Mm. Um, and those monsters... In are very high places as well. Well, no, they're, they're devils, yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, in terms, of, in terms of, like, you know, their, their uh, familiars out yeah. on the street who vote for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, you know, there, are, there are people who are, who are monstrous. Mm. Um, and they've been sort of synergized to be that through media over the last 20 years. I mean, this, this war on terror was not a singular issue of just warfare or and it wasn't a singular issue of just you know laws it was mainly an issue of media yeah and we can see that there's lots of studies of this. so warfare is never um a single strike issue it, it's a m- number of things including economics yeah the, the money that's been harbingered to to put towards uh military purpose then the actual capacity for the military machine then really it then becomes the cultural issue the dehumanization of the actual target group of course um in this case muslims the, well for the last 20 years of so, course. So muslims so uh because you know the intention was to go into those muslim countries, countries yeah. yeah and there would be backlash and this was said by the head of counterterrorism mi5 mi6 over yeah. time so so we've got that for 20 years of this where in 1996, 97, we had the Racial Relations Act, which basically watered down, well, really put a, the strong brakes on racism in this country. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly you have 2,000 coming in with this sort of exceptionalism for, for Muslims and the idea that Islamophobia is acceptable, yeah. which allowed all of that racist fervor to be focused mainly towards Muslims okay. and made acceptable. So Kel surprised that by the time we get to 2019, we have people baying for the blood of a child. I mean, 
I remember, I recall uh, in 2019 when the her revocation was announced. And I remember putting the Karens and Bobs aside and all, all the online hate and comments and the, the, the whole send her back, keep her there, let her die there. Who cares that all her babies have died? And all. It's mom- crazy, cold-blooded. Like, wallahi, I, I, mean, I think to myself... I remember I was I was I was I put a post up and I said, brothers and sisters, I want you to think of someone who's fifteen years old in your family. Think of a fifteen year old girl in your family. We're not living in a civilization or society where fifteen year olds were very smart. There was a time and there still are societies today <laughs> where fifteen year old girls are are much smarter than eighteen to twenty four year old women here. Mm-hmm. That's not the case here. I have fifteen year old nieces, I have fourteen year old nieces. To think that they made a conv- a, a, a decision, a conscientious decision with conviction that they want to leave for this place is 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 crazy. You would never accept that. You'd you'd have to there'd have to be some clemency. That look, man, there's have to be something behind this. But the level, the comments, just, it makes it, it was it's crazy. Yes, there there were good people, Tasnim. There were. I ain't well, gonna there say were even that. bad people. There's like there's Jacob Rees Mogg was yeah. supporting her coming back. Yeah, that was really. of course. So, but he he comes from a position of a Christianity, Christian forgiveness. But he also comes from a position of rule of law. Of course, absolutely. So in terms of this idea, even when the legislation was being formulated about stripping people of citizenship, um, in 2006, the then, you know, uh, sort of um, official who was there to look oversee uh, Kansas legislation was um, uh, David Anderson. And he expressed concern even then to say, well, this this is a step too far. This is a politician who has the right to take away somebody's fundamental rights now surely this should be in the hands of a judge a politician could refer the matter to a judge but a judge would then apply all the normal principles that they're used to applying politicians are not judges they don't deal with the balancing of people's rights and liberties they deal with how to get elected and powdering their face some of them powdering their noses in different ways um but but those are those are what their skill sets are not not a judges but we already know there's the existence of secret courts and even when Theresa may was uh the home secretary there were people whose uh citizenship were being revoked in secret terror cases terror courts Mm -hmm. they'll still exist well this is the whole SIAC system so anyone who has their citizenship they can then take a notice of that to uh, the site called Special Immigration Tribunals mm. and then appeal that decision. Now, those courts are pretty unique. Well, they're not quite unique. There's also in the TPM orders a similar type of setup. But what you have is a two-tier system. You have open evidence and then you have closed evidence. That's the evidence that's not accessible to the other side? No. Um, the closed evidence is not accessible to the person okay. themselves, so the claimant. What about uh, their legal team? Not the legal team either. However, the legal team are allowed to appoint closed barristers. So you'll have a junior and a QC. You can appoint them and you can talk to them before they see the closed material. You can th- you can communicate with them after they've seen the closed material, but they can't give anything back to you. So, what's the, whole, you. so what's the whole point of the... So it, it, it causes an interesting interesting problems, right? So, so, you, so you get to speak to a silk... Right, you get to speak to a silk, but he, but he or she cannot tell you the intricate details of the evidence that was submitted. No, they can't tell you anything. So, what's, so what's the point of conversing with them? So the issue is, is that they will go into the closed session, um, and their job is to try and convert some of that closed material into open evidence by either removing names or you know 
questioning whether or not this is not already in the open open sort of forum and out of that they will squeeze it like a sponge and it will drip out you know some okay. open evidence to to our team that's crazy uh, mm, well wow. it's, it's mm, i'll tell you when these systems how do we know these qcs are genuine you see this is the issue right so this is a really interesting how do you know issue. these guys are not politically driven and 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 and, and, and well i mean in, in fairness quite quite a number of them who are um also on the closed side of things who have been given that permission we, we know them through other work that they've okay, done okay fair yeah. enough so there there are people who are politically driven of okay, course fair enough. but you know they're also criminal lawyers or they're okay. or they're lawyers in other fields and we've worked with a lot of them in in open situations outside of terrorism in normal cases in shamima's case have you had to do this uh so yeah that that's one of the situations that's there it's in closed evidence yeah Right, before we move on to uh, the next topic of discussion today about another high-profile case you dealt with, um, just on the Muslim community res- response, which is what I was trying to get at before I, I kind of digressed. At the time, I remember... The Muslim community, in my experience, were full of you know, spineless scumbags. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, so there was a lot of that happening. And I couldn't understand it. That I had people within my own community, like in the locality of Queen's Park, Bedford, telling me that what's happened to Shamima... And those young girls, or any young girls who who went off to Syria to join ISIS or any other band group, that they should that's that's their bed and let them sleep in it. They made their bed, let them sleep in it. And that kind of response is crazy because I thought to myself, let's put aside the fact, let's put aside where she went, why she went, or let's put all those stuff aside. Can you not see that this this revocation it affects her today? It could be us tomorrow. It could be someone else. <clears throat> it could be someone else. It could be another group. It could be. Uh, it can affect any of us. Well, what, what annoys me most about the type of people who were saying that for the Muslim community <coughs> is that um, they were also saying that the ho- she's the Home Secretary or he's the Home Secretary. Mm. He's seen things that you haven't seen yeah. and therefore he's made the right decision. So my comment back to most of those people is, well, when your mum and dad, when your mum married your dad from back home yeah. and in, almost inevitably, or yourself, you've gone out to get a wife from somewhere yeah. else, when you apply for that marital visa, generally the Home Secretary says, sorry, yeah. rejected. Yeah? Yeah. So why don't you shut up then and just accept it? <laughs> but no, you go and appeal. You appeal it. Yeah. But why? It's, I mean, the spinelessness, the treachery. Now, this is... They're a bunch of benefit frauds. No, okay, but, 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 but see, uh, uh, look, look, you may not be able to say certain things as, uh, as her lawyer, as a, but I'm going to tell you, she is, one of the, she is the, a daughter of the community. I don't care what anyone says. Shamima Begum is the daughter of this ummah. Well, let me be let me be even more worried about that. She is she was a fifteen year old British citizen, yeah, and that's all you need to know about it. But even and from like a dini point of view, bro, I mean, just to hear bearded practicing men and sisters, people who look apparently religious and devout to say certain things. I remember, I remember the statuses, the tweets, everyone sucking up and ba- and jumping on a bandwagon about just 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 she's made a decision. Let it be their bad parenting. Da 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 da. Oh, she was a grown girl. I know lots of smart fifteen year old girls. You wouldn't say that if that was your own daughter or niece. Well, if our community, so, if our, if the Muslim community were worth anything, yeah. anything at all. If they were worth more than two pence, we wouldn't be in this situation. All right, the Muslim community, the Muslim community in the past, where a single woman had her hijab abused, the Khalif would send an army, an army to uh, rectify that situation. Hundred percent. And here we have a bunch of people. Many of those people who are, frankly, to be honest, you know, on benefits, probably cheating the system. Loads of dodgy things that our community does. Yeah, um, and they have an opinion about the lawfulness of something on a high level. You know, they can just shut up, frankly, as far as I'm concerned. If they've got nothing positive to say, then they should look into their soul and they should think, am I actually part of an ummah when, I, when I'm actually 
hoping for harm to be done on a young woman. 100%. Perfect cue to just move on from that type of ilk. Another high-profile case landed uh, on your lap, and that was the Almondbury Community School bullying case in Huddersfield, where a young Syrian brother, uh, a refugee lad, uh, was attacked, racially Islamophobically attacked, uh, and, and one could even say waterboarded to some extent. Um, horrible attack, uh, went viral, uh, and then this case somehow landed on you. How did that come about? Well, it, it was with me before that, that happened. So what, what has happened was that there was, as you say, a Syrian uh, family who had been brought to the UK through a refugee programme. Only 3,000 people had come through this. They'd actually been living in Lebanon in a refugee camp for a while. They'd come in about two and a half years before. Went to a school in Albany, uh, and they'd been savagely bullied, the daughter and the son, for two years. Father had tried to do what he could. He'd gone to the school, reported this bullying. And for some reason, he, could, he couldn't find a lawyer to take up his case. Um, so originally, there was, this was nothing to do with Tommy Robinson. This was just straightforward. There's a child being bullied in savage terms. And can we get involved to try and, you know, notify this to the school and the local authority in a way that we have such concerns about the level of bullying that actually they may be liable. So obviously, most of the people would have just seen that video in isolation and mm. would have thought maybe that was the only attack. But you're saying it was going on for a no, while. No, he had his arm broken. Um, he'd been stabbed. Um, you know, he'd been ridiculously... I mean, to be honest, when he came to me and explained what happened to him, I could barely believe that, that his story. Yeah, it was... I actually cross-examined the boy uh, in my office for a while because the story was almost... Un- the amount of abuse was almost unbelievable. How could this possibly be happening? And then um, then on, we applied... On school s- grounds? On school grounds. And, and most of these incidents, not all of them, but most of them were recorded. So um, we wrote to the school um, under a freedom uh, under a Data Protection Act request, subject access request, and the school gave us the records, and there it was in black and white, all of these incidents. For two years? For two years. Wow. Um, so we were gearing up to basically bring a, a case against a local authority in the schools. Um, these incidents were mainly orchestrated by a particular bully um, who was connected to the far right. His brother uh, is a friend of Tommy Robinson's. You know, Their family's known Tommy Robinson's. Mother's been convicted. Not the gentleman, in que- not the young dad that in question actually did the attack. Well, he, he became a little steward of Tommy Robinson afterwards. Afterwards, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, so, he, you know, he spent, Tommy Robinson said he lived in his house for a while and things. But the family were known to him. His older brother had been arrested at Tommy Robinson rallies for racially aggravated matters. The mother had been arrested twice and convicted. And it was this kid that was spearheading the campaign the for campaign, two years. That's wow. right, yeah. Um, so, there, you know, the, this, this bully and his, and his cohort had um, recorded on their own phones some of the abuse that they were giving to, to Jamal. And uh, after, after, I think, a few weeks of us being involved with the case, one of the videos then came to light in because they've been spread amongst the school, and then started doing rounds, and it became uh, a bit of a viral video. Yeah. Somebody unknown to the family or to us then set up a, a GoFundMe. Um, and, uh, quite a fair amount of money was raised, right? Something like £170,000. Which so, Jamal has given all or most to a bullying charity or something? No, 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 that's a separate thing. That's a separate thing. So we initially were working... Uh, oh, that was his winning, his legal winnings? No, 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 that's separate, yeah. So, oh, so we'll, figures. <laughs> we'll, 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 get, we'll get through that. Okay. But, but the money was raised. We decided as a law firm not to take any of that. We were going to do this case pro bono because the l- amount of bullying was so bad that we thought we need to get them out of that town. Like okay. they're just, 
it's got so bad that literally everybody in the town is now involved in one way or another of bullying this one Syrian family. Yeah, or, the, uh, or Jamal specifically. Well, no, Jamal, his family. The others were bullied as well, but they didn't want to come forward. His sisters were bullied. His sister was savagely yeah. bullied. Yeah, and other Syrian families as well, but they they did not want to come forward. Okay. So um, so we we transferred the money, the whole money to the family. Alhamdulillah. And uh, they bought a house in another town, and they've wicked set up, set up their lives that way. So. What what then happened was because this fund was doing so well, and it was pretty amazing. You know, you you see people huge outpour throughout across across Britain, huge. Yeah? Um, and th- you know, people were seeing these figures go up, the fifty thousand, sixty thousand, yeah. and people were still thinking, yeah, they've got that much money. I'm going to take some of my own hard earned wealth and give them some. Hundred percent. That was beautiful to see. So um, so that that was an important, and then. Tommy Robinson and Piers um, decides to like as he know, does sent, you know, st- into stage left. Really, yeah. he had got nothing to do with the situation, and decided to m- make up a lie because he, you know, he was butthurt basically yeah. about this. Britain is now supporting a Syrian refugee Muslim kid, and made lies about Jamal. Yeah, so he came out on his and he at the time he had a you know a channel, uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter Instagram, as well. Yeah, yeah. Twitter, yeah, and uh, he had over a million followers, and he then posted this false narrative that Jamal was a bully involved in battering some girl yeah yeah so uh, and, and you know Tommy Robinson's a criminal um, he is very difficult to pin down his address of course so we tried to find an address for him we'd noticed that he'd given various false addresses to courts in the past so we wrote a letter basically threatening him with legal action for defamation if he didn't stop and then we stuck it on Twitter because we couldn't find any okay. anything else to do so he became fairly quickly aware of that and a couple <laughs> of days later he came on his own sh- sh- channel and, and, and social media forum and made a video about how he'd been had yeah. uh, how this he was the one who's the victim yeah, yeah. because these were all lies yeah because he was fed lies apparently yeah. Yeah. so we thought okay fair enough You've been given a notice, you've retracted that, no problem. And we went back to preparing with this school. Two days later, he's out again, doing it again, doing yeah. it again repeating <laughs> lies. So we thought, okay, right, well, you know, enough's enough on that. And then we hit him with a defamation case. And, uh, and obviously that was a successful case. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 what kind of numbers were we talking? So the numbers are that Jamal is owed £100,000. Uh, What's the likelihood of him seeing any of that? Well, from we're... We're, we're going to be scratching away at Tommy for a while. Yeah, any any, any any possession orders on any of his properties? Well, he, he, had a, he had a million pound hat. So there's 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 a few things that I... Yeah, there's a few things going on. And I wouldn't want him to know exactly. Okay, fair doing, enough. Yeah? Fair enough. But, but you're on it, yeah? Yeah, we're on it. <laughs> oh, that's so, uh, so anyway, he's, he's claimed bankruptcy, whatever that means. Of course. It was quite interesting that in his bankruptcy hearing, he was wearing a £20,000 watch whilst he was yeah. claiming bankruptcy. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we, we have an eagle eye on these things. Since the Shamima case, the, the the proliferation and the prominence of the Shamima case, uh, Jamal's bullying case, um, I've noticed that there's been an increasing amount of trolling uh, from uh, those who appear to be from the very right-wing persuasion on Twitter. Uh, not so much on Facebook. You're mm. way too cool on Facebook with all the pictures of you. I love them. Great swagger you have. A nice random, I just had to give it to you. Okay. But on Twitter, okay. you're always engaging some mad Karens and Bobs, right? There's a lot of Karens out there. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so your popularity has definitely increased amongst those since because you've been appearing on the media like like back to back you I've, I've seen you uh, on, on all the major primetime shows and and and, and being um, quoted on the nationals so obviously that increased your awareness amongst these folk has it been offline and online with with that constituency of brits well for the lot for a few years i mean i've had 1500 complaints 
I've had uh, SRA complaints, basically. Okay. He's, you know, he's a traitor. Why is he okay. back in the country? All of that stuff. So it's all quite. I find it quite amusing to be okay. honest. And then, um, and I've had a few death threats. Some of them have been credible. And um, sorry to hear that, bro. Well, I don't care. Okay. To be honest, uh, it's like you know. To be honest, it's, just, it's the ones you don't hear about that you should be worried about. Of course. Any Karen who's sitting there going, oh, "I'm going to kill you," yeah. uh, they're not going to do anything because they're just too busy eating pizza and being too fat, really. No um, disrespect to those who don't eat pizza and are not obese. Those Karens. <laughs> I, I think that Karens come in all shapes and sizes. They generally come quite rotund, <laughs> I would say. Um, yeah, they're not. They're not. You know, vitamin D is not on their. Uh, they usually need that, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to be honest, a lot, a lot of a lot of these people are just they're the mouth of the, they're just you know internet trolls. Have you been approached like uh, in public by anyone? Well, because they've Paul, recognized Paul, you on TV. Paul, Paul Golding did, yeah, with yeah. Andrew Edge uh, at one point. So I was I was actually coming back from taking instructions from Jamal, really, yeah, uh, with a colleague of mine in the car, and we stopped off in a in a petrol station near Luton. Luton. This place is a wrong place. This is. <laughs> hey. right. But. Uh, we're coming out of had a bit of a meal, yeah. and then there's Paul Golding standing yeah. there with his entourage of, of um, you know the uh, educationally challenged, and uh, he decided that he's going to accost us. So you know he got his phone out, start threatening us and saying you're you know why are you suing Tommy Robinson all this stuff? Why are you suing Tommy Robinson? You're Shmuel Begum's lawyer. You're terrorist infi. All that kind of nonsense. All of that rubbish. But what is not on that on that uh, footage is the fact a lot of people came out of their cars. Uh, you know, from different backgrounds, and started accosting him. Wicked. That's why they walk away. Wicked. But we we didn't record that, and he obviously was embarrassed by it, so he wouldn't put that out there. We didn't want their faces on social media and what have you, and mm. they may be targeted. But he he got roundly rejected there, um, and actually since then, well, that, was so, that must be so poetic to see. It, it was. It was. It yeah. well, my colleague was highly very pregnant at the time, yeah. um, so I was quite concerned that the stress of that might cause some issues, um, but. Since then, you know, Andrew Edge, who was with him at the yeah. time, he's now a client of mine. Wicked. So, um, you how know. tables turn and how things happen, eh? Yeah. But, like, like that, that's, that can't have been in a comfortable situation, Tasneem. You're out there with a colleague who herself uh, is, was in a vulnerable position from a health point of view. You know, something that was totally unexpected, um, rocked up at you in, in, in a place you would have least expected it. Having said that, she's Irish and tough as nails. But she would have probably broken her jaw. Yeah, yeah. But the point is, though, that it's something that lawyers, I guess, don't, should should have to part with that. No, has, we shouldn't. No. We has, shouldn't. There, has, has there ever kind of has there ever passed your mind to perhaps not deal with these kind of cases? So when Shamim Begum sort of um, came back on the media in in 2019, then I did have to think about that because I'd already had death threats. Mm. So it's one thing for you to think about the concerns and risks that you're in but it's another thing for your family you know i've got a number of children wife brothers and there was a lot of stress that went on um with the media as well you know focusing on on them and then also you know them being targeted i think my wife's mother who lives in lithuania was targeted in lithuania because wow. of it so uh, by their you know press who is daily mail affiliated and things. oh wow so their repercussions are wide um so I, you know, I spoke to my family about this. I said, "Look, this this is back again." Yeah. Um, but you know, my wife's very supportive. She's uh, she believes that people should do what they feel their calling is, and that uh, you know, if there's negativity that comes with that, then we we shoulder it really. Alhamdulillah, man. Big up to your wife and your family for supporting you for that. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah wicked. Um, before we kind of bring the 
podcast to a close There's something about Shamim I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. um, and, and again I'm asking you out of ignorance Because I don't know legally what you're allowed to say What you're not allowed to say Or whether even you're allowed to even air an opinion Or anything like that But obviously now there is uh, What appears to be a I wouldn't say concerted But th- there's obviously a, an appeal from her now uh, To the British government uh, showing um, a type of reformation that she's uh, displaying, uh, whether that be kind of, of course, rightfully condemning ISIS and why she joined and so forth, why she wants to come back. There's a visible change in her appearance and so forth. And um, how fruitful and strategic is this? I mean, how genuine is this? I mean, because that, because that's a, that's another question that a lot of people are asking: Is this cap on hair out t-shirt? Shamima, who now disavowed everything that she, we thought she followed when she was a fifteen-year-old girl, which is a crazy question itself. Um, how genuine is she? Um, so the thing is, this is that, and uh, there's also a, another mm. angle is that if she comes back, can Shamima be trusted, or will she will she just be used as a spy or an informant to just think your own community? There's all these kind of arguments floating about. Sure. How strategic? So, so, so I guess what I'm asking is, how strategic and fruitful and genuine is this apparent change in her? And number two, should the Muslim community still s- at least offer some level of... I know you are very super critical of the Muslim community and, 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 and I believe that a lot of it is justified. But she still deserves the support of the community. The last people she needs doubting her sincerity are the Muslims, surely. Who, who, I mean, I mean, the, the cap, the hijab off, the... Dis- I mean, is, is, this a, is, this a, is this a super strategy to, to make... The Karens and Bobs accept her and change public opinion, or is it a genuine change? So the, what, what is it? I so mean, the legal team, we have very little contact with her, um, even over the phone. It's very, very, very limited time. So how are things communicated to you? Uh, well, I, I'm now representing her family, so I leave that for the lawyers who are I'm, dealing with her okay. uh, to deal with. But it's still very limited. Okay. Um, now the idea that the lawyers are involved in any sort of Jimmy Choo makeover type thing is is a complete nonsense. But what I will say about Shamim Begum is. If you look at the arc of her life, uh, she was a young 15-year-old girl, um, and she was you know, not wearing a hijab initially and what have you. Her family weren't you know, particularly focused on that. And then she finds herself in a friendship circle where women, some girls are wearing hijab, and she's influenced by that. Which is very normal, by the way. Absolutely normal. Very, very normal. For the for the non-Muslim listeners and viewers, I just want you guys to know how normal it is. In fact, it's something that many Muslim parents actively try doing. You put your daughter, uh, who's gone beyond the age of puberty or hit the age of puberty, around girls who wear hijab as a positive influence that you may want to wear it. You do well, it with, we do it with aunts and sisters and mums. We do it. So that's well, I'll say in the, in her case, it was slightly slightly different in that uh, her family weren't strict about these things. And but her friendship circle were wearing these things, of and so she, uh, her own character, she adopted this garb. She then goes to you know ISIS-controlled territory where she people say she married, but we have to remember this is a Dutch national who was twenty-three years old, and when she was there, she was fifteen. 15. So this is statutory rape in okay. terms of any any of the you know the Dutch or the UK law. So whatever that dynamic is, she has a she she's 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 very little. Uh, agency in that relationship and then she's wearing the niqab because women have no choice in in, in isis controlled syria and then she finds herself in a refugee camp which is controlled by kurdish um sort of separatist forces who don't wear hijab right they're they're, they're, nationalists, they're alibis, yeah, yeah. Uh, or communists yeah. and so you know i'd imagine that what the one thing you can say about shamima begum is she's very much a product of her environment 
Yeah. Okay. So I'd say that that would be more of a, a reason behind any changes because in fairness to the Kurds, they've they've done everything they can to help mitigate against some of the trauma. Yeah, we know that they're provided mm. female uh, sort of companions to try and you know, go through go through the trauma of her losing three kids, war, and all of this business. Um, so I'd imagine that she's adopting some of the uh, mores that the the Kurds themselves, um, you know, express. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier on in the podcast that uh, the case in that school involving the nine girls, including Shamima and Shamina, um, that this was a real case of what appeared to be ISIS-related online radicalization. Right. Yeah. Now I know that we have mutual friends We have circles that overlap People who don't tend to like using those terms mm-hmm. Because it has been politicised And it somewhat over the years Has become somewhat synonymous To someone becoming more practising More Islamic, more normative But this was a genuine case Where young girls were being groomed Do we? Did we ever get to, Has anyone ever got to the bottom of Who were the people they were conversing with online In so, these forums Yeah, so I mean I There there was um, a young woman who was up north uh, from from Glasgow, I believe. She'd gone some years before. I forget her name now, but she she was certainly involved in that process. Okay. But ISIS had entire teams of people whose specialism was to contact Western girls, mainly, yeah. but men, and uh, they were trained in how to to you know bring them towards their cause. Now you've got to remember that they were pretty professional in this, but you know they they influenced a limited number of people, so. The numbers are, in what well, we think the numbers are, about 1,800 people from the UK went from the UK to Syria. Now, this is despite ISIS pumping out propaganda on an industrial scale. So if you think about there's 3 million Muslims in the UK. 800 is microscopic. Exactly. So, so there's something to be said about looking at the lives of these 1,800 people to see, well, you know, the, the pull factor was there. The ISIS propaganda was there for the 3 million. But what was the push factors in these 1,800 people's lives that caused them to, like, you know, Take up the sirens, um, and if you look at them, there are issues in their in their backgrounds and what have you. People people think this country is free, and you can express yourself the way you want, um, but that's not true for everybody. You know, that's not true for everybody. Do you know, uh, do you know of a gentleman called Shiraz Mahir? Yes. Um, uh, former HT, then became mm-hmm. a counter radicalization to kind of CV type guy, mm-hmm. uh, very chummy chummy with Majid and these guys. I remember I had a conversation with him. It was it was a quite a respectful conversation, and, and and obviously he does his kind of counter radicalization stuff at King's College, right? And uh, I remember he said to me, uh, I, "I just thought as a th- as as an observation of 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 someone who claims to be a researcher uh, and, and is dealing with data." He said, "Oh." People who went to Syria, uh, whether it was to join ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra or which Ahrar al-Sham, whatever it may, because generally they fell into four camps. It was a part of his research. I mm-hmm. had him on a show that I had on Ikra TV okay. many years ago. And he said, look, people fall into the four camps and there's sometimes overlaps in the four camps. Number one, um, the ideologues. So the Al-Muhajirun types, guys who are genuinely believing we're making hijrah to a khilafah, it's a religious obligation for us to live under Darul Islam, under Sharia law, we really believe in this, we are going to give bayat to al-Baghdadi, we're off. Mm-hmm. That's that camp. Then you got the adventurous guys, guys who didn't even necessarily come from bad families or even bad backgrounds, they had decent jobs, they had a job, they were financially secure, but they thought it'd be a laugh, they thought okay, Let's go and see what this Islamic state is about. You know, let's, these guys in Bali's and black flags and clashing clothes look pretty sick. And you know what? 
I want some of that. And if there's a lot of, if, 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 if you know, if we can't pull birds here and we can have shitloads of slave girls there, you might let me let me go give it a try. Adventurers, okay. yeah. So ideologues and needs. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> third group was um, he, third group was those who were seeking redemption. Mm-hmm. People who had lived really un-Islamic lives. Uh, drugs, drink, you know, all kinds of madness, and they felt that the only way that they were going to redeem themselves was to this extreme reformation to now go and totally overcompensate for all the bad that they have been that they have done. And then he said there was a fourth group, um, and I, for, I forgot what the fourth group was. The fourth group, I forgot, but he, he he categorized the fourth group, and he said there's overlaps between all fours. From the ideologues to the incels and neeks to those who were seeking redemption. And I thought that was, I mean, I, I, I it sounded not credible, but I could see how that makes sense. And how what you just said about 1800 cases and how what was happening in those individual cases uh, that made them, that drove them to make that move. Well, there's an excellent study by, um, uh, called The Edge of Violence. Okay. And it's one of the few studies in the counterterrorism field that isn't, echo chamber just studies upon other studies yeah. just direct information evidence people in canada uh, germany netherlands and the uk sorry the fourth group was those who went as aid workers uh, couldn't deal with the plight there felt that like they had to do more and decided to stay that was the fourth group I, I would say that it's attractive to to look at people in those categories yeah. and you can make a case for that yeah certainly you can um but what i would say is this is that most of the people who went there went out of a sense of righteousness, yeah, that they can see something horrible happening. Yeah. Um, and these were, like, if you've ever been there, you would see you would see queues of people or parents holding children, toddlers in their arms, and each and every one of these kids are broken. They're, they're sh- their bones are shattered through bombing. And they've got pins coming out of them. And I ch- challenge a human being to see that and not feel that you want to do something about it. A challenge, it, it takes an effort of will to to be able to look at that and not not want to do something to redress that, to stop it. And so people will look to see, you know, they're charity workers, they'll look to try and do the charity work of they course. can do. Others will want a more direct sort of involvement in terms of, you know, sort of stopping that directly with their hand about what, what's happening there. And this is an admission made by many who went there, Iftika Jaman, the Portsmouth Five, so many others went there. Look, we initially went there not to actually fight other Sunni groups. We literally went to fight Bashar. Uh, That's the thing. That yeah. We went to fight the regime. Something that, to begin with, in 2011, 12 and 13, the UK government wasn't overtly even against. It wasn't was like, against or even actively supporting. Exactly. You know, so they were providing material support themselves. Yeah. But but it's important to, to know that that's the instigating motive behind people. And it's exactly the same for those sort of English-type fellas who gave up their jobs and they went to join the YPG. YPG to they, fight ISIS. They saw the horror of what ISIS were yeah. doing and they decided that they're going to try and put a stop to this, whatever they can do. Yeah, uh, So that's the initial sort of you know, motivating factor. Then what happens after that is that when people start making inquiries, then the type of people who want to recruit you will engage with you. And they'll, they are psych- they're psychological experts. They will look to find what it is in your makeup that they can put a hook into and then work on that to bring you over. So Sorry. if it is the fact that you um, you know you have a, a religious inclination on the on the actual sul fiqh issues that you have a working knowledge of that, then they will latch onto that and they will then fill you full of the type of interpretation of sul fiqh that will take you over there. Okay. You know? Now, if you are the type of person 
who just feels that you know that you're beyond redemption, you've done too much sin in your life, they will guilt you, they'll guilt trip you yeah, until you get over there. Mm. And if you're the type of person who feels that charity work is the thing to do, they'll encourage you over there and then they'll make contact with you and they'll work on you some more. So this isn't a sort of these people were motivated and they beat a path across three different borders to get over there one way or the other. No, this was a dynamic situation between people who are paid, their jobs were, to manipulate people to bring them over. Mm. And when they engage with them, then their weaknesses or their, or, or the, the point of hook that the, uh, that the uh, recruiters could use was identified and then worked on. So it was. It was not just push. It was pull as well. You you were of course about in the nineties, uh, at a time where it was British foreign policy. Uh, Thatcher was literally. There's footage of her praising the Afghan mujahideen. There were certain du'at and scholars who actually went there to train during the the, the war mm-hmm. with the Russian, the USSR, or even Bo- uh, Bosnia. Bosnia. Mm-hmm. So 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 I mean. As someone who lived through the 90s and those eras, how does it seem that there was a time where people could actually collect for jihad? That could actually collect uh, eye socks and mosques, it was allowed. They were given the tacit approval to go to these lands, fight and come back. That all of a sudden now we're in a situation where literally you, your citizenship could be taken for an innocent visit to Yemen or Kashmir well, or somewhere. We don't have to go to the 90s, we can go back straight to Libya. Okay. I mean, we, we, we had uh, Salman Abedi's brother, yes. right? Um, now, this is the hypocrisy of it all that uh, Shamima Begum has gone over to Syria, and she's such a threat to the UK that she has to be stripped of citizenship, she can't come back. At exactly the same time, the UK government is is overcoming every diplomatic resistance to find Salman Abedi's brother, get him, and then ship him back to the UK. And, yeah. and he was involved in killing 22 people. So the hypocrisy is there straight away. But the reason I bring up Libya is because many individuals who are under TPIM orders, house arrest, or in custody, were released actively and given their passports back to go to Libya yep. to fight. And come well, back. And come back, yeah. And this is where we find problems. But the reality is is that... So what is it? What is it about Shamima's case that's that, that that's not deserved it's, or received? It's one thing. It's, it, it was Sajid Javed's career. That's all it was. <sighs> okay, okay. So, so on, on, just on the issue of dealing with radicalisation... Let's put aside the, the radicalization which is defined or driven by CV apparatuses and security services and those think tanks that are linked to them, whether it be Henry Jackson or what was the, or Sarah Khan. And let's put all that. The, how does the Muslim community begin to deal with those, that kind of radicalization? You've dealt with the families. What kind of advice would you give to families? And Muslim faith leaders, and to to to, do, to own this issue whenever it does arise, not to necessarily blow it up. Then, because well, well, you're right, eighteen hundred compared to three million is microscopic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you were to put dots into it, it's, it's nothing. But what kind of advice from your experience of dealing with the family of Shamim well, and well, to, to faith faith leaders, I'd first ask them to find their testicles and reattach them, please. Yeah, yeah, that's quite important because <laughs> they they don't want to talk about this because they're scared. Right, they're scared that if they talk about this in any way, that they're going to have their funding cut or they're going to be, you know... An investigation, you know, statute investigation commission. Or, you know, you'll have uh, the Telegraph come after them and write a hit piece on Tassim, them. quick one. Are we saying that, look, if, if faith leaders, imams, scholars, du'at, activists, are we suggesting that... I just want your view on this. If they were allowed to, 
without the fear of being witch hunted, without the fear of people informing their employers, without the fear of funding being cut or their charitable status being taken away and all that kind of stuff, if they didn't have that fear, do you believe that mainstream normative scholars and activists who uh, articulated concepts of khilafah, caliphate, sharia law, hudud, citizenship, al-wala, al-bara, all these kind of things which ISIS guys do play on, right? Those are like their hot things which they, they'll use the terminologies linked to these normative concepts to win over you. This is, this is a non-strategy of theirs. Would you say that if they were allowed to talk about these subjects more freely in a normative fashion that that would help? Yeah, well I can prove it because we didn't have people running off to join groups like ISIS and the numbers we're talking about before the prevent strategy. Before people were scared to what you could go to a mosque and ask an imam about jihad and stuff, and they'd educate you about what that means, what the conditions are, really. But I'll tell you, the majority of people who went to join ISIS, the book that they ordered on Amazon was Islam for Dummies, right? So 75% of the people who went to join ISIS, they ordered a book from Amazon in order to inform them about the basics of their deen because they did not know the basics of their deen. So what that tells you wow. is that the the 75%? 75%, yeah. Where did they get that data from? Well, you arrest people and you find out what's on there. Oh, oh my yeah. days, wow. So if, if, you, if you think about that, what does that mean? That means the least Islamically knowledgeable people are the ones who are easy for people like ISIS to radicalize. And you look at the people who are, the, you know, who, are, who are much more versed in their deen and their knowledge, and they're much harder to write. These are not madrasa graduates or students from Darul Ulooms going. Yeah, you'll get one or two. One or two, yeah. But, but, but generally, the, the, the constituency of it is not that. No, they're, they're jahil people, basically, oh, God. On, on the whole. Because, you know, it's not surprising. You know, it's the reason why, you know, those Nigerian scammers. You know? yeah, yeah. So when you get an email from a Nigerian scammer, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Right. It's usually a, oh I've got you know twenty five million. I am the prince million. of this. I am yeah, prince yeah. of this place, and, and I just need you to send me two thousand dollars. And for you to now, now any rational person is going to think, what sort of idiot falls for this? Why would they make it so obvious? It's actually but people do no no, but it's designed to be so obvious, yeah, by the scammers because they don't want clever people. That's a waste of their time. They want morons to respond to them because then they're more easy to scam, right? So they make these narratives. Very, very obvious for anyone with critical thinking to avoid them because they want people who don't have critical thinking. And therefore, when you think about what ISIS are doing, if anyone turned their mind to the Syrian horror, you have six million people running away from their own homes. Then you've got 1,800 people trickling in against this tide of Syrians trying to get away from their own homes, yeah. swimming against the tide. Yeah? They're not the sharpest tools in the kitchen, are they, really? Of course not. Um the Nationality and Borders Bill. I mm. know you said to me off camera, you guys, look, the immigration isn't really my thing, but we can talk about what this particular sure. piece of legislation uh, is essentially telling uh, a particular segment of this society. So Clause 9 stipulates that the government can revoke someone's citizenship without notification. Yeah. Um, naturally, this will affect, if not mostly, if not entirely, people of immigrant descent, people of colour. The vast majority, yeah. How would it affect a white Caucasian Brit? Theoretically, it could, in that if they had a dual nationality. In Canada or America yeah. or Australia or South Africa or something like that. That's right. but, but let's be realistic about it. It's going to really only majority affect people of colour, immigrant, immigrant descent. Yeah, I think the New Statesman did some um, crunching of numbers on this, and it will affect between five and six million people in the UK, potentially. <sighs> 
Is there a two tier? Is there a two tier system when it comes to people's citizenship? Look, there, there, there has been since two thousand and five. The problem is a lot of communities haven't been alive to it, right? Because so why did it take the Shamima case fourteen years later to realize that our citizenship means jack shit to us? Actually, because what what happened in her case fairly uniquely is that she <coughs> has no other citizenship. She was born here and she was never in Bangladesh. Now, most people who think about this think, about, oh, if you got deported, it's because you've lied about s- some way that you got naturalized into the UK. Yeah. So fair play. And there has always been that, that if you lie in one way or another to get into a citizenship of another country, that can be taken away from you. Fair play to that. But the idea that somebody's born and the only place they know is the UK and that can be taken away from you, that was a wake-up call. People, and it hadn't really been done to somebody who was from the community. Is generally, it was like, you know, the Abu Hamzas of the world of course. are not seen as part of the community. They're seen as sort of, you know, rogues, and he, and he wasn't born here, he'd come over six or so and what have you. But suddenly you have somebody who was a child, who was from a school in London that loads of people, you know, have their kids going to the same school. Yep. Um, and she looked like us, she behaved like us. Spoke like and us. her family are certainly exactly the typical family you expect from, from that that part of London, really, mm. and then she's had a citizenship taken away. Well, then you know you're next. So it was very much a, a watershed moment for people, but that actually the the light had been actually cast finally on this area of legislation. Now, the clause nine is horrific; it has serious consequences by not being given notice. But actually, the the reality is that that could have been done to you, but they can send a letter in the post and do it to you. So. Clause 9 has caused people with the Shamim and Begum case to actually wake up to this issue. Wasn't there another piece of legislation that was passed a couple of years ago? It was the Counterterrorism and Security Border Bill. That's right, yeah. What was that one about? That, well, oh, sorry, that was about you could be somewhere else in, in a listed country, in a, in a list of countries that they regard as a security threat, so and you could be re- your citizenship could be revoked then as well. No, not just that. It's also cr- to make it into a criminal offence. So effectively, that bill allowed... Um, the, the 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 UK government to declare areas of geography criminal now. So if you find yourself in that geography within 28 days of it being declared, then you are now a criminal unless you've got a reasonable excuse for being there. So literally, Somalia, Yemen, Kashmir. I'm just thinking about where there is diaspora communities in the UK and which countries can be seen. Afghanistan. Well, actually, more importantly, maybe for the future is going to be China. Really? Well, I mean, we have a large population of people here. China is very much being drummed up as the new enemy. Economic superpower, yeah. Um, so, you know, this is a piece of legislation that allows them to say, if you go to China without reasonable excuse, that maybe, you, you know, you'll be criminalized. I mean, if you if you want to create trade barriers, no better one than to declare that and anyone who goes, they'll just get arrested. That, that would dissuade business from, from going there rather than, you know, places that the places that UK may have trade deals with in the future. How important... Uh, do you think it is for Muslims and non-Muslims, uh, Britons of of conscience and goodwill and who have good values, how important is it for us to continuously oppose these kind of laws? Because people can watch this podcast be like, right, okay, so Dilly and Taslim just, just spent an hour and a half smashing the UK government, complaining about how shit and racist the laws are. What do you want us to do about it? Well, look, these politicians wouldn't have the the metal to to actually you know, pass these laws if they didn't think they could get away with it. And by get away with it, it means that they still need to be voted. They need, to, for them to have the power, they have to be MPs. And that means that they have to be voted into power. Now, I'll say something of the Sikh community. 
they've taken a very strong a fantastic and com- stance. commendable stance yeah. on this where what what they've said is if you are our local mp politician and we haven't seen your face on tv or on social media stringently opposing these laws a we will not vote for you B, you will not be able to lobby within our places of worship or community centres. And anyone of our community that has provided financial support to your campaigns will be advising them not to do so in the future and to switch it away. Praiseworthy, man. Absolutely. Big up to them. Now, the you know politicians are, are very simple creatures. They want your money and they want your votes. Now, if they're in office, they want your money, but they want your votes later. And if they're not in office, they want your votes, but they also want your money, right? Of course. Just cut off their money and the votes. Um, as a lawyer, uh, how do you deal with the challenges of working in a system which is increasingly day by day showing its uh, double standards, its very uh, two-tier system-esque of dealing with Muslims, people of colour and immigrant, and immigrant descent very different to those who are white Caucasian and seen as indigenous? Well, I'll, I'll say there's a... there's. There appears to be almost an open battle between the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court now. Um, You'll note that the Shamima Begum case, when we appealed the decision, we won on the Court of Appeal. You did. And that was on the basis that justice and access to justice is more important than a perceived threat of uh, of you know of danger to the, to, the, to the national security, but not too long after, Supreme Court reversed that. They yeah. said that the idea of uh, security is more important than the idea of justice, which 100%. is a very interesting position for a court to take. Yeah, but these are fundamentally opposed. These are the these are two these are two different courts that have the opposite idea of a value structure. Well, the Court of Appeal has said that justice, justice is more important, and the Supreme Court says no. In their view, given the conditions. You know, uh, security, whatever that may be, is more important. So that it tells you that there are good people in all tiers, really, and it's always going to be difficult for somebody and clients who are from a group that's not the majority to try and you know hold a candle to the idea of what rights are, because rights are all well and good when you give them to your friends. It's it's actually a measure of your uh, integrity whether you give them to your enemies or not, or the perceived other. So the UK has failed so far on that. It's crazy, you know. You know when you say the perceived other, but we're literally Brits. Whether you like it or not, we're born in the UK. But but you know when you say perceived other, just that's the level we've got to over the course of twenty years. That we're literally Brits who are born here, who are as British, or if not more British, in terms of. Uh, their culture, their awareness, their education, their upbringing, I would even say their commitment for the betterment of society, that we have to literally label ourselves as the perceived other. And lit- well, look, I mean... No, but the, which, is, which is what we are. No, we are that. We are. I mean, I'm, I'm saying it's sad. It, it is. It it's is. sad, bro. I mean, we, we, we're sat here as Brits, the third, fourth generation Brit, and, and, and it's absolutely acceptable to call ourselves the perceived other. That's crazy, Tasnim, man. It's crazy. Think about it. I mean, look. If you if you ask about integration, yeah, yeah, ask a Scotsman or a Welshman whether they feel integrated yet or not. That's true. And an Irishman, they don't. Yeah, right. So, you, you know, we've got we've got they've got a long way to go for okay. the Scots and the Irish <laughs> and the Welsh to be integrated. Fair and enough. I guess uh, I guess we've got a long way to go. Uh, last last question to you. Um, I've conversed with you. Fahad Ansari, there was Attic Malikon a couple of weeks ago. Um, I've spoken to Gareth Pierce before, many other lawyers uh, in the field of counterterrorism or, or specialist immigration and so forth. And it sounds like a very challenging job. 
how much help do you how much help assistance how much maturity has there been in the muslim lawyers community the, the muslim legal community who many years ago weren't really known for their bravery and brave stances this is something i asked atik malik this about the muslim lawyers association i said look 10 15 years ago they were as good as useless if not complicit in some of mm. of, of of just their their negligence and inaction of a case like prevent now opposing prevent is fashionable i don't care what anyone says i'd say there's a couple of lawyers that i have respect for okay. a couple is there a lot of work to be done in 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 your in in your legal community yeah i think so i mean look most of them are just like you know failed business people who just can't take risks and uh, and they just want to you know keep their head down and make some money really That's a reality. Don't want to rock they, the, they, don't, they, they don't, talk about religion this that. It's all crap, you know, right? They actually just Don't, don't want to rock the boat much. No, no, they're just, you know, they they look the lawyers and the accountants and the politicians, they're no different from the average uh, you know, person in the Muslim community, right? So the average person in the Muslim community, they, you know, they money, dunya, security, that's, life, that's career. Issue, okay. Yeah. One very last question. Um, I know I keep saying that, but they, I was always told and I've always heard that many of the syria related terror cases mm-hmm. that kind of started springing up after the the foreign policy change in in under cameron's government we're talking about 2013 mm-hmm. once they kind of realized that hey guys there's no one really there on the ground that we can really persuade they all seem to be a bunch of sunni islamists right um there i always had that there were muslim men young and old who were pleading guilty on cases and on charges because their lawyers didn't have the cojones to plead the not guilty and fight the case and set a precedent that a lot of these guys were pleading guilty to charges because they just wanted to do less time in prison and wanted to be out how right. true is that so so i i would say be cautious about blaming the lawyers for that no no i'm just asking i'm, I'm telling you what i've heard okay so i'm so, asking if so, you've heard i i would say that it's less likely that lawyers were advising them that way yeah what's more likely is that you have a bunch of people who are basically don't have the confidence to run a case really and when they're sitting in prison a lot of the inmates are telling them just plead guilty because everyone else is quickly guilty. but 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 there's times where your lawyer look i was for two years uh i was the business director of dia valente solicitors i worked with lawyers very closely mm-hmm. and there's been times where some of my colleagues were like, will tell you you're bound to rights you're bound to rights you might think you're going to plead not guilty and sway a jury i'm telling you you're bound to rights yeah now you've instructed me i will listen to whatever you say but i'm giving you my advice i do not think it's wise to go guilty with uh, not guilty with this i've literally had those conversations so look, law- lawyers are by definition cautious in their approach yeah they have to be because they they're not there to tell you what to do they're there to give you the different um, sort of re- situations that you may face but they'll tell you what they think would be a better avenue surely so yeah but that comes down to risk you know risk yeah, yeah, then they present you the different scenarios yeah. the ri- the risks associated to those how you may mitigate some of those in a in a, in a situation depending on which way you went look this is the look, this is the problem like right? the law the in terrorism laws the sentences are horrific are cowardly yeah. lawyers making brothers plead guilty to charges yeah some of them are okay yeah. some of them are but because I, they're scared, I, I, because they said to fight a case and set a precedent no i wouldn't see it's unlikely that they're doing that right It's on I've had clients who um I would say I want to take a case because I want to take this case to the court of appeal. Yeah. Um and I've been quite plain about that 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 look this law is bad law, right? Um you sh- but they they themselves have been said well what are our options and quite against 
you know what our desires are to to try and stop this law from gaining root uh they've decided that and it's completely their right to because they've been advised that here are the consequences if you plead guilty get a third of your sentence basically um we could try and do a basis of plea which would mean that they water down the the, the actual offense water down by either dropping into a lower offense or that they accept that a number of these facts that are in there are no longer in there now when someone's looking at counterterrorism laws and sentences are north of seven years on the lowest level, 14 years life, and you're looking at a plea deal that can mean that you'll be out in two years, there's very few clients who are going to, you know, want to make a point of challenging the laws themselves when the consequences is 10 ah, years extra in custody. So, so, they don't fo- so they don't end up having the books thrown at them. They themselves, from a human personal point of view, would rather do two years, three years and come out than try and fight the... F- yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Look, there are many. You saved your peers there, man. That's a, that's a well, valiant. Look, you, you know what? I, I think the thing is, is that I'm I'm not one to pull my punches. You know? And uh, you know, as I say, there are a couple of lawyers, literally two or three, that I respect very much. There's a lot more that I don't respect. Mm. Yeah, a lot more. Right. Um, so I won't pull my punches. But I know my industry, and I know the difficulties. Um, where you're defending people who are looking at very serious sentences. And people want certainty. People want to reduce the risk. And these laws, these sentences, we're talking about you know people who've downloaded a book you might get a couple of years for, three years for, for having a book. That's not the, the British tradition of law, right? This is very different of course. to what you know, the, 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 the tradition of a thousand years of criminal law is. Um, and they've been created specifically, basically to encourage people to plead guilty and take it, right? Okay. Plead guilty and take it because the more people who plead guilty to it, you can then point to them and say, "Look, they even self they're self confessed terrorists." Now, somebody wearing a t shirt has recently been convict- convicted of, of a terrorism laws. Yeah. Now, this is weird, right? Yeah. Having a, reading a book is terrorism, really. When you ask somebody what terrorism is, they know what it is in their head. It's blowing someone up, yeah. killing a lot of people. Absolutely. But when you start saying that looking at a website is terrorism, reading a book is terrorism. You're watering down the idea of what terrorism actually is. Now it's becoming uh, it's, it's becoming non-criminal acts. Well, that's the whole point of prevent. ideas and thinking. Well, that's prevent, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, when I told uh, some brothers and contacts uh, that I'm going to have you on the podcast, um, they, uh, they request that I ask you a few basic things uh, to do with some clarity on, on, on certain possessions. Um, is it illegal to have a copy of Sayyid Qutb's milestones? No, it's not. Okay, um, is it illegal to? Ha- in, in fact, it's quite important. The milestones is has never been used as a as a book in a case where possession of it is itself a criminal sort of act. It's not document likely to be of use to terrorists. It's not section fifty seven or fifty eight. Mm. What what it's been used in those cases for is as background, as sort of mood Thinking. music. Yeah, yeah. So this is the type of person that this is sort of almost like a negative character approach. Um, is it illegal to have uh, lectures of Anwar al-Awlaki, Lives of the Prophets, the Seer of the Prophet ﷺ, the Seer of Abu Bakr, Omar Uthman, not the latter stuff, So it's his older stuff? So th- th- there are lectures by Anwar al-Awlaki that are not in his name that you might be aware of. Pardon? There are lectures from Anwar al-Awlaki that are not in his name. They're written under a non... Well, okay, spoken under a non, non-diplume. Right. Um, but I would say that in terms of you know transmitting that, that would be seen as encouraging terrorism. Okay, you know, because well, even um, his older stuff. No, his older stuff is uh, like the ten, 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 the ten years of Pro- Anwar Awlaki. Look, Anwar Awlaki was was an advisor to the MCB in this country at, back in two thousand and six. He was an advisor; he was officially there, yeah. and the MCB were advising the Blair government. So, yeah. 
I don't know, it was a vicarious advice to the British government in terms yeah. of these issues, yeah? yeah. Uh, back in 20, 2006. Whether the MCB want to admit that or not is another matter, but... Um, but so th- th- that's where he was because he was a highly respected. Yeah, well, IFE brought him down in East as well. well a lot of people like to have a lot of amnesia when it comes to people who are yeah. not so popular anymore. You yeah, know? yeah, you know, the same sort of thing with people who, you know, were very, very happy to be friends with, you know, the royal family and um, and, and Prince and Andrew. Yeah, yeah. And I'm all of a sudden, like, yeah, oh, we never knew him, right? Um, but but you know, th- this is the nature of the beast. Um, and An- Anwar Aluki was a very well established, very respected scholar for many years. An event took place, or well, the Gurakh War took place, which turned him, uh, his mind to a certain issues of warfare and what have yeah. you. Now, in in some of his series of lectures, if you were to transmit them or you were to possess them, there there is information within them that would be classified as being um, being being uh, glorification of terrorism. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, Simba, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. No problem at all. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did, bro. Thanks again. <laughs> yeah, Brothers and sisters, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed the podcast. Brother Tasneem uh, had a lot to say and uh, it was wicked listening to it. Um, having him on was long overdue, so I was glad that he came on. Alhamdulillah. Uh, Brothers and sisters, remember to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel and, of course, the avid listeners. Uh, you can find us on all the major platforms. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Brothers Podcast, a five pillars production. production.